Hello, and welcome to the Tech Dirt Podcast. I'm Mike Masnick. The world is increasingly technological, so we have better get methodical. Bringing precision to critical digital journalism with the singular vision of the modern monocle. Stopping the copyright bullies from pulling the wall on us. Painting and taking on all the blade to pay to troll. Document the ways that they aim to take control. Scrutinize and do their lies and make them fold. If we don't stand up to them, someone will get hurt. To grab a shovel and dig up the tech. If we don't stand up to them, someone will get Uh, As you've probably heard by now, uh, there's been quite a bit of talk over the last few years focused on child safety online. Uh, We've had a few discussions on this very podcast about, I would say, the problems of the various proposed solutions um, to the very real concerns about kids online. Uh, A root cause of many of the problems, in my mind at least, uh, is that the policymakers have very little understanding of how the internet itself works, and therefore many of the proposed solutions will actually make things worse rather than better. Uh, I think some of that is driven by mistaking social media shining a light on the size of the actual problem with the belief that it is social media that has caused that problem. Uh, But just as I focused on how little is understood about the internet side of things, it appears that many of our policymakers, and certainly some journalists as well, don't have as much of an understanding about the actual child safety side of things either. Uh, Maureen Flatley has been working on child safety and child exploitation issues for basically, I think, about as long as I've been working on internet policy issues. Uh, And she's been quite vocal lately about uh, how concerned she is that bills like the Kids Online Safety Act or COSA um, don't actually help to protect kids. And given how central this discussion has been of late, I thought it would be great to have her on the podcast to talk about these issues from the point of view, uh, from the child safety point of view, rather than just my typical from the internet point of view. So uh, Maureen, uh, welcome to the podcast. Hey, Mike, I'm so happy to be here. Thank you so much for having me. Sure thing. So let's start with your background, since I'm going to guess that many of our listeners maybe are not as familiar with you. So, um, what, what's what's the what's your background? So my virtually my entire worldview was shaped by being the daughter of an FBI agent who spent his virtually his entire career detailed to the Senate Racketeering Committee in the 50s and 60s, where he developed most of Joe Valachi's testimony against the mob, worked for Bobby Kennedy. And after his retirement from the Bureau, he and I went into business together, had a government relations firm that um, specialized in government reform and oversight and basically digging into problems that needed to be fixed and helping Congress understand how those solutions should play out. Um, For a long time, we just worked on regular commercial things, clean water, auto safety, things like that. My father died very suddenly, and I, uh, quite by accident, actually, was uh, sort of thrown into um, some child welfare issues to look at. And although I'm not a lawyer, I'm not a social worker, I very quickly understood that this was a world in which there was very little meaningful oversight. There was a desperate need for reform. And of course, during the time that this um, involvement was playing out, the internet was becoming a thing. Mm -hmm. And so I started really paying attention to how 
in a lot of ways, the internet was extremely positive for kids, but how, to your point, the lack of understanding of how it worked um, and what was perhaps the appropriate use of it then contributed to a lot of really bad ideas and bad decisions and ultimately bad outcomes for kids. Yeah. And then, so I know that you've, you know, been instrumental in a number of different laws, you know, dealing with, with child safety. Do you want to talk a little bit about that work? Sure. So when I started out, there was a huge problem with kids in foster care. Um, Quite frankly, this kind of laid the groundwork for my worldview when it comes to dealing with the child protection issues that we see today. But I spent quite a bit of time and ultimately became an architect of the Adoption and Safe Families Act, which is a federal law that overarches the states, that gives them their sort of marching orders in terms of how they should protect children, and also the billions of federal dollars that flow into that system. Ironically, Mike, that has really become that knowledge, that body of work has become the foundation for my views on what needs to happen today. Because uh, as I have said many, many times in the past few weeks, when I looked at the list of 42 states or so that were suing Meta, Mm -hmm. I was incredulous because virtually all of them have been sued for their own woeful outcomes when it comes to kids. And so the notion that they would somehow be on the moral high ground related to tech companies who are mandated reporters, and I think I want to talk about that a little bit and why that's important, was pretty incredible. And then, of course, the state attorneys general insinuating themselves into all of this, who have really not effectively enforce their own state laws around child protection. Uh, And so what I saw before me as these other bills started to unfold was a pretty audacious exercise in hypocrisy. Yeah. If not the blind leading the blind. So. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, some of it I think might be blame passing as well. Right. I mean, they don't want to take. Oh, it's all, it's a hundred percent. Look at the shiny object, but whatever you do, don't pay attention to what I've been doing. Yeah. Yeah. So, so let's talk. Um, so, I mean, you mentioned the mandated reporter stuff. So, so why don't we start with that yeah. actually? So, yeah. Yeah. you know, part of it is, and, and just as, as framing, you know, and, and I think this gets confused in a lot of these discussions and I think it's misrepresented um, by some politicians in particular. Um, so from, you know, the way I look at it and feel free to tell me I'm wrong and, 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 and correct my my understanding but you know the the way it's set up now in terms of most of the reporting that goes to NICMEC, the national center for missing and exploited mm-hmm. children um and they have this thing called the cyber tip line the um mm-hmm. the social media platforms effectively are required to report um child sexual abuse material that that they come across that they find and report mm-hmm. to the cyber tip line. And what has happened in the last decade is that the number of reports has gone up dramatically. And there are different ways to interpret what that means. I have taken it to mean that these companies have gotten much better at finding and reporting this content. The tools have improved. The processes have improved. The whole operations mm-hmm. setup has improved. So they have reported more. Some people are looking at it as... Uh, that these companies are 
you know, because they're finding more, it must mean that they failed to to stop things and that they've they you know, this is a, a revelation that the problem is them. Um, right. not what happens after they report stuff. So I, I'd love to hear your sort of take on all that. Yeah, well, <clears throat> it's a lot to unpack here because <laughs> you've just you've just sort of isolated on the fundamental problem, both in terms of perception of what's happening and an understanding of what to do. Mm-hmm. So, um, you know, I... The, the concept of mandated reporting was created in the early 1970s in the Child Abuse Prevention and Treatment Act. I think it was a Walter Mondale project, and it created categories of people who come in contact with children who were mandated by federal law and state law to report abuse, neglect, exploitation. So it started out, it was you know pediatricians and school nurses and mm-hmm. um, teachers, <clears throat> daycare providers. Um, the categories have been expanded a number of times over the years, especially as we learn more. I certainly think, for instance, the Catholic Church abuse cases were illustrative, mm-hmm. uh, and I did a lot of work in that space. Um, <clears throat> but what they all have in common is that they're shielded from civil liability, because if they weren't, what a can of worms that would be. We would get yes. no reporting. And so as mandated, just hold hold on one second, because I want to unpack that Mm -hmm. because I actually think that's really important. Mm -hmm. It gets to some of like the Section 230 discussions that we have, though it's different. This is not a Section 230 issue, even though people pretend it's a Section 230 issue. But it is it is a question of liability. And if you put liability on things, it it, it Mm -hmm. creates incentives for companies to look the other way. So if you say that you get liability, you know, uh, immunity or protections for reporting, Mm -hmm. that encourages Mm -hmm. the actual reporting. So I I just just wanted to drive that point home because it's really important. Right. Right. Well, I mean, I mean, you know, imagine if you were a school teacher and, you know, you reported uh, little Johnny was being abused or you thought that they were and maybe they weren't actually, maybe they were just having a bad day or whatever, but um, it would be. We would have no child welfare system if mandated right. reporters were subject to liability. So when this, when cyberspace came along and when the whole notion of mandating the reporting by tech companies happened, they were also appropriately given a shield from civil liability because mm-hmm. if they weren't, it would be just a catastrophe. But the important thing to note that no one ever really wants to talk about is that they are not shielded from federal criminal prosecution if they conspire with bad actors, if they are negligent in their management of their platforms. So what I noticed with tremendous interest but growing concern is that the very thing that made the tech companies useful, powerful, and essential to the virtual child welfare system was the thing that they were being blamed for. So in other words, I look at the cyber tip, and I have done quite a bit of looking at the cyber tip situation in the last number of years. The only reporters to that cyber tip system are Mm -hmm. the tech companies. Without the tech companies, we would have zero reports, right? Yeah. The number one reporter to the cyber tip line is Meta, Mm-hmm. And, you know, as I was watching the hearing and I was at the hearing last week or two weeks ago now, um, I thought to myself, wow, if I were Mark Zuckerberg, this is what I would have said. So Chairman Durbin 
Senator Hawley, the you know kind of aggregated committee members, many of whom I know quite well, were just there to castigate him. Right. And yet I looked at that, and if I were Mark Zuckerberg, I would have said, you know, ladies and gentlemen, you've had 16 years since the enactment of the PROTECT Act, which was President Biden's last bill passed as a U.S. senator, to build a world-class prevention and interdiction system for child exploitation. Almost 16 years. Mm -hmm. And according to a recent GAO report, which is a scathing indictment of both DOJ and Congress, in my view, you have failed to do that. In the meantime, we in the tech industry have become mandated reporters, and we have dutifully reported every opportunity that we can locate. Meta is the number one reporter. 68% of cyber tips come from them, I think. And yet what happens to those cyber tips? Mm -hmm. Now, 32 million cyber tips doesn't necessarily mean 32 million crimes. Right. But one thing we do, we know a couple of things. One is that the the material is geolocated. So 94% of them are referred to foreign governments that are under absolutely no um, obligation to do anything with that material, which many of them do not for Mm -hmm. a combined uh, reason of maybe not having the resources or they're part of the problem. The remaining cyber tips that are U.S.-based, 6% or so, we know are barely even examined much less investigated in any meaningful way by law enforcement. The conviction rates up against that remaining number are minuscule. And so what does that say to me? That says to me that the mandated reporters are doing their job, but they cannot arrest or prosecute anybody. Right. And so these cyber tips are going into a black hole, thanks to Congress and DOJ, and why is that important? Well, I mean, obviously, there's a huge expenditure of, of tax dollars that goes into supporting this system that has increasingly become like a, like the illusion of a solution as opposed to an actual, yeah. uh, you know, mitigating law enforcement function. But it also means <clears throat> that almost in 16 years, almost an entire generation of kids have been exploited in ways that were completely preventable. And yet no one at that hearing said to Mark Zuckerberg, hey, Mr. Number One Reporter of Cyber Tips, um, how can we help you do a better job? It was a complete, I I mean, I went and visited with some of the member staffs the next day and and they thought I would be all excited. And I was, I said, I was appalled. It was one of, I've been going to congressional hearings since I was a child and I've never seen anything that was so responsible. So anyway, this whole business, Mike, of, of the tech companies being mandated reporters, but being treated differently from other mandated reporters is um, very troubling And it really certainly suggests to me that very few people on Capitol Hill understand the critical shift that happened when the Internet became a thing and when cyberspace became the place that criminals operated. And, you know, I was on a a panel at State of the Net the other other day and I said, you know, like to use an example, like the Yahoo Boys, you know, it's mm-hmm. a you know kind of loosely organized, you know, group, a very well organized crime ring, 
that operates in many countries. And, you know, there were people at the hearing talking about how their kids were victims of sextortion. And that's horrible. And I know a lot of victims who have been in that situation. But I think you and I both know that there is no private company, however well-intended, that is, forget in a position, but for whom it is appropriate for them to bust up a crime ring. And, you know, one of the reasons when I look at the conviction rates, the low conviction rates, I wonder if one of the things that isn't suppressing the conviction rates is this whole, the tech industry is expected to police itself. You have the, you know, illegal search and seizure issues. And so it's astounding. It was just astonishing to me that the U.S. Congress, and I've seen the U.S. Congress do a lot of amazing things in my lifetime growing up in Washington, has such a primitive understanding of what is going on here and has completely and utterly rejected the law enforcement issues, which are really the backbone of the problem. Yeah. I, I think this is such an important point and it's it's worth I'm I'm just gonna be repeating what you said to some extent, but I think it's really worth just underlying uh, underlining and putting an exclamation point on, which is that this is a criminal problem. It is very clearly mm-hmm. a criminal problem, and private companies cannot enforce criminal law. Mm-hmm. It just I mean, and and yet this entire approach to the way that many people, and this includes many in the media as well, are looking at oh. this issue is is as oh. if as if the private companies should be in some way enforcing criminal law. And, and it's, it is perplexing to me that, you know, and and I've said this in other contexts too, but it applies here as well, is that so many of these issues, these are, are real, like significant societal level issues. This is why we have governments in the first place, right? To, to help take on large societal problems and yet they seem to be abdicating their own responsibility and then blaming the tech companies for not magically solving the problems that they that they've deliberately ignored or abdicated their own rights and and you know only yeah. only the government can can you know legitimately stop criminal or deal with criminal activity and so it it yeah. bothers me how little of that discussion is ever put forth and it's there's just this weird assumption that so many people have that it's it is somehow Mark Zuckerberg's responsibility to stop crime as if right. as if he even if he could magically make sure that this mm-hmm. was not happening on Facebook or Instagram or or WhatsApp or whatever right. that that it would disappear because it's not it's not targeting the root of the problem it's not getting at the actual criminal actors it's not arresting them it's not dealing with them it's just it's just about the method of distribution and they'll find other methods of distribution if there's right. no law enforcement going after them so you know i said to a reporter after the hearing it's like blaming a bank for being robbed <laughs> right. you know there's a yes. there's there's a there, there you know so many people at the hearing were from dc and and I, I don't know if you saw it, and it's happened in other places, but there's a CVS store in the Columbia Heights neighborhood of D.C. that has been targeted repeatedly by gangs of shoplifters. Hmm. And so 50, 60 guys will go in there, wipe the whole store out. And I said, you know, did anybody blame CVS for getting shoplifted? <laughs> no, they called the police. And so right. in a very real way, the same thing is happening here. And, you know, oddly, Mike, it, in a weird way, it reminds me of where – the racketeering committee started. And mm-hmm. I have actually said, this is something perhaps you need to be thinking about U.S. Senate. 
you know, for many years, J. Edgar Hoover said there was no organized crime. It wasn't real. Mm-hmm. And then the Appalachian Conference happened and, you know, kind of a building did fall on him and he had to figure it out. And so they then Senator McClellan really drove that. And I kind of view, you know, Ron Wyden is kind of the Senator McClellan of this scenario because he's the, he's the one person along with a handful of other members who really gets that this is a law enforcement problem. But, you know, the Senate Racketeering Committee very deliberately attacked what was an international crime problem and solved tens of, I mean, my dad used to joke, they solved crimes they didn't even know had been committed. So in this (laughs) instance, when I think about how craven it is to blame a private company and I'm not here to just defend the tech companies, but yeah. I happen to think that they're that the vilification that they've received is to say it's misguided. It would be an understatement, and it's a very convenient way to shift the blame away from the people who are really responsible. And I said to a couple of members after the hearing, "When are you going to drag the people from DOJ up here and have them explain why yeah. the Protect Act hasn't been enacted?" For yeah. instance. Yeah. When are you guys going to start holding oversight hearings and keep things moving along? Um, you know, maybe it's time to update that cyber tip line. Maybe it's time to demand some outcome measurement. And I, you know, I, you know, I think you know that I'm a big believer that law enforcement is at the core of this. But then when you look at some of these other bills that have been put forth, it's, yeah. I mean, it's almost funny how awful they are and how completely detached from reality they are and how transparent they are when it comes to punishing the tech companies as opposed to protecting kids. And my big concern as someone who has spent a lifetime working on issues related to children is that if any one of these bad bills passes, and I don't really think that many of them have any real chance of passage, but if they were to, Congress would check that child protection yes, box and say, you know, we absolutely. did our job. Aren't yep. we great? And it would never come up again for <laughs> yeah. a million years. And so, and who suffers? Kids suffer. So it's, yeah. they're, it's, it's, we really have to get on the stick here because it's not, it's not working. Yeah, no, I, I agree totally. I do want to talk about, and, and you're right, there's there's like, you know, a half a dozen, maybe more of these bills floating out there right now. I do want to talk a little bit about the, the Kids Online Safety Act, which I mentioned in the introduction, COSA, which, you know, they've just released a new version of, and it seems to be the one the the one with the most momentum. It has 62 co-sponsors at this point. It includes Chuck Schumer. It's, it, it you know, if if any of these bills has has a chance of passing, you have Biden has has said mm-hmm. pass it, pass mm-hmm. it, pass it. Um, mm-hmm. You know, so they claim that they've fixed you know some of the problems with the latest version. I'd love to hear your opinion on on the current version of COSA. This bill is just to put it bluntly, complete garbage. <laughs> I mean, it, you know, first of all, it allows it still allows the state AGs to engage in litigation against the tech companies, which some of the sponsors may have led their colleagues to believe that that problem had been fixed, which it has most definitely not been fixed. Right. These are the same people. I mean, that basically what, it, what they're doing is creating a federal law that lets the states sue the federally mandated reporters who have a civil liability shield. I mean, I'm no lawyer, but I'm pretty sure that's not right. And it gives enforcement powers to states who (laughs) uniformly, Mike, and I have spent my entire adult life looking at these issues up close, 
have have not done a good job. It creates a council, right, that is going to mm-hmm. be packed with cronies and hacks. And by the way, will take years to put together. So the, yep. there's no sense of urgency. It allows the weaponization of the FTC. So depending on who's in charge, the FTC yep. can be sicked on whoever they want to. But it gives DOJ a complete pass. Yep. And that, to me, is extremely troubling. It has no focus whatsoever on criminal justice. It's it's really, you know, it's a classic example. You know, they the, the, the big thing with bills is you give them qu- – cool names. So, you know, who wouldn't be for the Kids Online Safety Act, right? Right. But um, this is a bill uh, in the immortal words of Jerry Seinfeld about nothing. And it will not prevent, it doesn't take one predator off the street. It doesn't prevent the victimization of a single child. And it runs the risk of very definitely exacerbating the problem. Because honestly, if you don't start to take the criminals off the street, you're just creating an endless cycle of victims. I'll give you one last example. Yeah. You know, Gavin Newsom, who is my least favorite Democrat, um, <laughs> has a bill, you know, he has a big, big precedent and, you know, pats himself on the back and, you know, he's going to be tough on the tech companies and, you know, they're the bad guys. And then they turn around in California and release a million pedophiles on early release from prison. And of course, if there's a crime with a higher recidivism rate than this one, I don't know what it would be. So it's sort of like this whole issue has been reduced to press opportunities, talking points and show trials. Mm -hmm. And the big losers are kids across the board. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it it is interesting, like just to go back to like the state AG issue, which was a, a very big issue that was raised certainly by, by many folks, you know, the, the, the new version of the bill removes the state AG enforcement for one section, but leaves it in for three others. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So it is, mm-hmm. it is mm-hmm. not removing the power of the state AGs to go after companies. And, and again, as right. you noted, it gives some, some more power to the FTC and that, you know, is as much as it is supposed to be an independent organization, we all know that the whoever's president gets to pick who's in charge of the FTC and that mm-hmm. becomes politicized very, very mm-hmm. quickly. So I think I think mm-hmm. there is some some real real problems there. And I'm disappointed to see, you know, to see more more senators sponsoring this the new version and to to pretend as if it it was, you know, the the underlying problems are were fixed. Um, I wanted to bring up, you mentioned Senator Wyden. Um, you know, uh, we're, we're always a fan of Senator Wyden here. We've had him on the podcast mm-hmm. in the past. Um, he's worked on a bill which has gotten effectively zero attention. I think I wrote I wrote about it, right. and I don't know if anyone else has. Um, do you want to talk right. about Wyden's bill? Well, Wyden's bill... <clears throat> is this audacious, amazing, visionary response to a serious problem that will actually make a difference. <laughs> you know, I'm when I think about solving children's problems, I'm always thinking about the system, the infrastructure, you know, what really needs to be put in place to help kids, whether it's enough social workers in the child welfare system so that they, you know, don't have caseloads of 200 kids, um, whether it's enough mental health providers to make sure that kids have, and remind me to go back and talk about Eric Adams in a minute, mm-hmm. um, to have enough, to have enough uh, 
bandwidth to give kids what they need. And so, and Senator Wyden is a careful, thoughtful, strategic legislator. So, you know, he wasn't going to reinvent the wheel or come up with something that was superficial. He he basically looked at the PROTECT Act, which, you know, has been limping along, no thanks to DOJ for a long time. And he crafted a bill that was basically designed to modernize the PROTECT Act, to bolster the original legislative intent of the PROTECT Act, and to what I call right-size the funding, Mm -hmm. really in every part of the system. So, you know, somebody said, well, you know, there's a bill that funds the prosecutors. And I'm like, well, that's like producing half an episode of Law & Order, you know? (laughs) It's like this bill goes from, you know, the beginning of the process to the end of the process. It takes you from identifying and investigating the criminals to helping the victims go through that process, the criminal justice process, to putting people in jail and helping prosecutors have the bandwidth, having courts have the bandwidth, having law enforcement have the training bandwidth. I talk to lawyers and law enforcement officials all the time, and most of them are extremely concerned about this. And they all say the same thing. We don't have enough resources. So this would, for instance, I mean, if we're only looking at something like 3% of the cyber tips, mm-hmm. okay, what do we, how many more people do we need to analyze them? Well, this right. bill adds 100 or so. And so this bill to me is one of the most important bills around children that's been introduced in a long time. It has quite a bit of spending associated with it, but I was absolutely delighted when the fiscally conservative watchdog group, the Taxpayers Protection Alliance, Mm -hmm. endorsed the bill. In fact, I just wrote an op-ed piece with Pat Hedger, their marvelous executive director. The spending is all offset. Mm -hmm. And this, by the way, is not a problem you can fix without spending money. Right. And it's a lot more expensive if you don't fix the problem. Right. So I have been a huge fan of this bill. Um, from the very beginning, I think it's exactly what needs to happen. And quite frankly, I'm outraged that the Judiciary Committee has not included it in any of their serious discussions about this, because I think they're all trying to, you know, they're all trying to throw a softball here, not spend any money, be able to say, hey, I checked that box. But, um, you know, that's not the way Ron Wyden works. And in the House, you have people like Don Bacon, who I am very, very fond of, and Brian Fitzpatrick, who's, who's I think, the only current former FBI agent in Congress. I mean, these people know firsthand what's required. So, and, you know, with, with Don, Don and I have talked about this, and he's also a foster parent. And, mm-hmm. you know, when I come, when I look at the continuum of child welfare issues and policymaking, you know, we have a massive population of kids in foster care in this country on any given day who are at the highest possible risk for exploitation. So to have members that have firsthand knowledge about that and what that means is really, really important. So, you know, I tell people all the time, that's the only bill that I'm going to endorse. That's the only bill I support because in a universe of things that needs to happen, this is the first thing that needs to happen. We have to approach this problem strategically and tactically and with a sense of urgency, Mike. You look at a bill like COSA, I mean, it's, it's, it's awful. Mm-hmm. And it doesn't, it doesn't attack the problem where it needs to be attacked at the front end. It's like 
your house is burning down and you know your kids are inside, but you call your decorator to talk about what the new house is going to look like <laughs> instead of calling the fire department. Yeah. Ron Wyden's calling the fire department. Yeah. So when you when you talk to people on the Hill, like what's and you point this out to them, what what is their reaction? Mm hmm. Well, you know, the good people, and there are plenty of good people on the sure. Hill. You know, it's easy to vilify the Hill, but the good people get it. And I think it's a question of, I mean, there are 535 members of Congress, so right. you don't really need to talk to all of them to make right. things happen. And, you know, Biden's the chairman of the Finance Committee. But I do think that on this particular issue, there's been a little polarity and, of course, pride of ownership. And, you know, mm -hmm. somebody wants to be, you know, the winner of the, you know, I fix kids sweepstakes. And I'm looking at you, Senator Blumenthal, because I really feel that he has, in a way that is, um, you know, almost inexcusable, ignored a lot of the real solutions that are needed here. Uh, you know, there was a lot of grandstanding at that hearing. Mm -hmm. uh, not that that's unusual anymore, but... Um, there was very little substance and that's, you know, that's been a problem. Yeah. But yeah. I think there are a lot of people that are interested in, in it. And I think frankly, having a conservative watchdog group analyze it and sign off on it is helpful because um, I think especially in the house, there's less of a love affair with the bad bills. And I think there's more, uh, there are certainly more different points of view. So I've actually been talking to a lot of Republican offices lately, and it's been fun because they're starting to get it. And this is the other thing, Mike. You know, when you do kind of like what I do, you don't just walk into an office and say, here's right. a bill, do it. You want to help people understand why mm -hmm. they should do it. And also give them all the points of view and say, this is why some people think this bill is good. And this is why some people think this bill is good. But you know, this is the bill. Right. This is the Invest in Child Safety Act is the bill I'm telling you is the most effective response. At the end of the day, you're going to have to make a recommendation to your boss. And I think, quite frankly, one of the things that's happened here is that some staffers have made, have put their bosses on bills and then Invest came along. Right. And so they were kind of wedded to the other bills. Earn it is a good example of that. And um, and so now what do you do? Well, you know, to that, I said, I had this conversation with somebody the other day and I'm like, Hey, you know, this happens all the time. A lot of bills get introduced, but if a better bill comes along, right. you know, don't let your pride stand in the way of doing the right thing. Right. So yeah. I, part of it is, I think too, that the industry itself has not understood where they had some moral high ground here. Mm -hmm. And so they talk a lot about the constitutional issues, which are absolutely important. But I think sometimes they don't even understand themselves that as mandated reporters, as as the only right. reporters, they they are actually, I mean, I'll say it, without them, we wouldn't know anything. Right. So that's been, that's been a, uh, that's, I think, contributed a little bit to the polarization. Yeah. Interesting. Have, have you, um, on the, the law enforcement side, do you have any conversations with, with the law enforcement? Cause you would think also that in, in, in the way that the, the widen invest bill, um, you know, gives them money to do their job. You would think that they would mm -hmm. be supportive of it, but it, it feels like I, I often, feels like they're supportive of things like COSA and EARN IT instead. And so I'm wondering if you've had any conversations on the law enforcement side. 
Yeah. I mean, that's been just being, you know, one 75 year old grandmother up here um, doing what I can. But um, I do. The DAs have signed the National Association of District Attorneys have signed on, which I'm really glad because, boy, they're really on the front lines of this problem. Yeah. And I think that um, that over time, other law enforcement officials will come on board. I think certainly anybody that understands the degree of spending um, will understand very quickly that if there is one thing that law enforcement should be backing at this point, it's this. Mm-hmm. I think, you know, I, and I also think, and I know, a lot, you know, growing up in a law enforcement family, I know a lot of people in law enforcement, and I think that they kind of feel sometimes like everything is important, mm-hmm. you know, so maybe everything would work. And, you know, I've said over and over again, I'm not going to support any bill until Invest is clearly in the front position. And maybe there are some things in some of the other bills that I would support, but there are some bills that I would never support under any circumstance. Earn It's a good example because Earn It is really about giving trial lawyers a lifetime appointment to (laughs) having a lot of money. Yes. Um, Literally. I mean, you know, if that wasn't drafted by a plaintiff's attorney, I I mean, I know it was. So anyway, but Yeah. yeah, so I do wish that law enforcement would get up to speed. But, you know, as one friend who's a local police detective said, you know, we're busy actually catching the bad guys and we don't <laughs> right. necessarily pay that much attention to politics. So this yeah. is something that I think we could probably do a better job messaging about. Yeah. I do wonder also how much of it is that, you know, it, it, sort of the thing that is underlying the the widen invest bill is the fact that the DOJ hasn't done its job and and they might not want to endorse it because it kind of shines a light on on the fact oh, that they've, they've failed to do stuff. So Yeah, and I think that Senator Durbin is apparently being staffed by a detailee from DOJ, which is troubling to me because even though there's probably a lot of subject matter expertise and well-intentioned, could be a little conflict of interest there. And, yeah. um, you know, that I mean, I think in a weird way, Mike, you just hit on something that is really an important aspect of this, and it's counterintuitive. But, um, you know, DOJ has been kind of all over the map. Um, obviously, we've had a lot of political activity around DOJ or accusations of political activity. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, there was an interesting – I'll send it to you after the show um, – there was an interesting article, a blog post written by Rod Rosenstein, the former deputy mm-hmm, attorney sure. general, about how conviction rates from DOJ are down across the board. Hmm. And that's the first time in modern history that it's ever happened. But in reading the article, one of the things that jumped right out at me is that child exploitation is not even on their list of priorities. Hmm. And so I know from my dad's work, you know, Hoover was a character, to say the least, um, but he was a masterful marketer. And he understood that, you know, he created the top, the 10 most wanted list. And Mm -hmm. he was always counting, you know, how many people were arrested for bank robbery, how many people were arrested for kidnapping. And we've kind of gotten away from that. And so, you know, the Rosenstein piece actually really got me thinking about this in a different way. I mean, I started when I was writing our white paper, which we started writing last summer, I was looking at the conviction rates against the cyber tips. And I was horrified at the Mm -hmm. numbers that the numbers were so low. And then I thought, well, okay, maybe what we really need to be looking at is what are the cyber tips? Mm -hmm. You know, 
like what percentage of cyber tips are really real? Because one thing we've seen with mandated reporting and child welfare is that, you know, if you don't like your next door neighbor, you know, you can make an anonymous report that they're beating their kid. And, you know, so the caseworkers have to wade through all of the bogus reports to get to the kid, you know, chained in the basement, starving to death. And, you know, maybe that's the case here. I mean, we do, we've done, we've seen a lot of things with DOD around tracking terrorism and things like that. So maybe we need to be talking about how the cyber tips are created and maintained. I think that that's definitely got to be a priority. Hmm. Um, But outcome measurement is also extremely important. And I know we've seen in child welfare, you know, kids languishing in the system. So how many kids age out of the system every year? How many kids get adopted? How many kids get reunited? 20 years ago, we had no idea. Now we not only know, but we're tracking that data longitudinally to be able to see what's working and what's not working. We don't have that with DOJ with this issue. And I think that's another reason I like the Invested Job Safety Act because it right. kind of addresses that a little bit. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, so you, you had mentioned earlier, and I wanted to make sure we got back to it before we finished the podcast, but you had mentioned, uh, Mayor Adams in New York. So, uh, what's, what is the, the issue that you have there? Well, I mean, that he would be, I mean, I know he's an audacious guy, but if he would be <laughs> audacious enough, and I haven't read the complaints yet, I'm going to do it tonight, that he would allege that tech companies are somehow, harming the mental health of children as the mayor of a city that has been being sued since the 1960s for its horrendous care of kids, for the the perennial neglect of these children educationally from a healthcare and mental health perspective is ridiculous. Yes. And this is why I say we can't look at these issues in isolation anymore. If a state comes at a tech company about, like I'll use an example, the MetaSuit, one of the complaints is, um, you know, that they're monetizing the kids' data without the permission of their parents, okay? Well, guess what every single state, but I think Maryland does if a child enters foster care. If that child is receiving Social Security benefits or if they're eligible for Social Security benefits, the state takes that money and spends it. Mm -hmm. Not used for the kid. The kid ages out of the system with nothing. And meanwhile, the state is, and actually in some states, it just goes in the general fund. So it's not even in the child welfare system. It's buying police cars and building baseball fields. So this disconnect and this, the way that the paradigm has been established as the state attorneys general mm-hmm. are going to be the champions the DOJ hasn't been or nobody else has been is ridiculous. Yeah. And you haven't seen the, the state AGs lay a glove on any of these practices. And meanwhile, you know, I mean, one of the things that I was looking at this afternoon is that as we think about these states trying to create a private right of action against tech companies, hold the phone. These tech companies are all bringing cyber tips into every single state yeah. They are mandated reporters with federal funding in every single state. Since when can a state attorney general create any liability in civil court for a mandated reporter that is serving their law enforcement system? Yeah. So I mean, this is the stuff that I just I mean, 
you know, I'm no expert in tech, but I know a little bit about the stuff that I do know about. And I look at this and it's just astounding to me. Yeah. But, you know, tech's got deep pockets. And I think it's a, I think in some cases it's a bit of a revenue maximization opportunity for a city like New York, for instance. Yeah. But um, yeah, Eric Adams is going to be hearing from us. <laughs> I mean, that's a, that's a joke. I mean, it, yeah. it, it's, it's an appalling, horrible joke. Yeah, and and just to clarify for people who aren't aware, Adams uh, recently sued the tech companies claiming public nuisance stuff. And and if if you've been reading tech Twitter, following this stuff, there have been a bunch of lawsuits from like school districts um, against the social media companies. They're all pretty ridiculous on on a number of different levels. Uh, Adams is using the same law firm that many of the school districts are using. So it, it's it's mm-hmm. this law firm that has sort of set up a practice of suing tech companies claiming harm to children, uh, it feels to me like it is just a pure sort of money grab, hoping that the companies will just say it's easier to pay off. You know, we have whatever, 50 of these different lawsuits. And so to the school districts who are doing this Uh on contingency and now New York City as well joining up, I think they're all just hoping that the companies will pay up and it'll be free money for them. It's, it is not the, the lawsuits are not good. (laughs) They are just silly. They, they claim like public nuisance and, and like harming mental health without any evidence. They make, you know, blind conjectures. There's, there's so many problems with it. And you're right that like New York City certainly has, you know, pretty serious issues with how, how it handles children. Right now, there's like all of this attention on how it's handling migrant children, for example. Uh, and, for you know, sure. by law, it is supposed to house them and it is like making them sleep on floors. So, you know, I think right. that, you know, rather than suing tech companies for their mandated reporting that, you know, maybe they should focus on cleaning up their own house first. Um yeah. But, I mean, you look at the suicide rates and suicidal ideation of kids in, in foster care, it's astronomical. And, you know, there's been all this talk about, you know, well, I mean, let me let me pull the big one out of the pocket. If you really want to protect kids and you really want to go after somebody for liability, let's remove that, you know, uh, civil shield from, uh, let's say, gun manufacturers because mm-hmm. they kill a lot more kids than Facebook ever will. Yep. And yet... We don't really see that happening, do we? And so it's really been, I mean, this is like the classic low-hanging fruit situation. And of course, I don't see any of these lawsuits earmarking any of the proceeds for mm, kids. Right. So, or dedicating the proceeds to, say, mental health services in New York City, which is literally a crisis. So I just, I I, I wasn't, I I don't know where the, where things started to go sideways, right? Mm. But the child welfare system has a well-established model in terms of reporting and how those reports are handled. And the the tech companies have become the backbone of reporting. And, you know, nobody's saying that they're perfect, but God knows there's not not a single perfect child welfare system in America. But also in terms of the pro-con, you know, I've been helping a little bit with this uh, kids who've been abducted in Russia by, or in Ukraine by the yeah. Russians. And, you know, AI is helping to figure out where those kids are and who they are and and ultimately will help reunite them with their parents. We've got 24,000 images that have been confirmed hmm. and geolocated. And, I mean, that's, that's technology. I mean, right. a million kids have been adopted from the child welfare system because one of the first big websites was 
adopt us kids and people mm-hmm. from all over the country have been responding to that problem so the notion that you know if Dick Durbin says one more time that big tech is like big tobacco, I'm going to have a stroke <laughs> um, because that is such an overreaction yeah. and such a misleading and mis and and really inflammatory statement. So yeah, but yeah. that's where we are. Yes, yes. Well, uh, continue to fight the good fight, and uh, I hope you. I hope you're able to convince more folks uh, in Congress of of you know, the problems with the, these other bills and what's good about, about Senator Wyden's bill. Um, and I hope more people, you know, recognize like there are ways to actually deal with this problem that are not, are not the ones they're yeah. focused on right now. So um, yeah. it's, it's a law enforcement problem, Mike, it's not a tech problem. At the end of the day, all the cultural issues flow from that. And we, yeah. if we don't attack that, we don't fix anything. Yeah. Yeah. Well, um, thank you again uh, for all the work that you thank do you. and also for, for taking time to come on the podcast and, and to have this discussion. Anytime. It's... Thank you so much, Mike. I'll see you soon. Yes. And thank you to everyone who's listening as well. And we'll be back next week. If we don't stand up to them, someone will get To grab a shovel and dig up the tech. If we don't stand up to them, someone will get To grab a shovel and dig up the tech.